On today's episode, we talked to Dr. Sanja Ardwa about the hidden cost of leadership learning, the impact of student loan forgiveness, and why she no longer wears khakis. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the NASPA Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Vichanu, and I'm joined today by my lovely and talented co-host, Brittany DeVees. How are you, Brittany? I am good. As promised, I submitted my prospectus before this episode, which is a great update. Um, So we'll defend that in a couple weeks, probably by the time this episode comes out. So that is an exciting update. But how are you, V? I am doing all right. Uh, thing, so we are in week two at the University of Illinois, and week two is the story of COVID. Um, we just got information back from our university dashboard saying, on average, one in four undergrads has tested positive and one in five grad students has tested positive as well. So we are trying to make our way through um, some very challenging circumstances. But one of the great things about teaching leadership is that you're surrounded by people who like to solve problems. (laughs) And so I have had some really great conversations with my students about how to change the original plans we had, you know, a week ago (laughs) to help fit what's actually going on in our local environment. Speaking of the first couple of weeks of class, we are recording this episode right before Labor Day weekend, which means both the University of Illinois and Florida State are just wrapping up their first two weeks of classes. How has campus been for you, Brittany? We are back full swing. Things are good. We've got our gender and leadership class going strong. We did definitions today, which is always fun. I'm always reminded in this class I just did this morning that students have often never heard the difference between leader, leadership, management, some of those foundational terms that in our work, sometimes we forget to define them, right? Even in our writing, because at that point we're building upon them. So it's always a good class to recenter me and like where people are actually starting at oftentimes in these conversations and how critical it is to really consider our definitions in our work and where we start from. And oftentimes when we're doing definitions that people are starting at 18 different starting points in a group of 18. Mm-hmm. So we can't just say like, oh, everyone is starting with no knowledge on leadership because as we socially construct all of it, it's coming from different lenses. So it's always a good reminder of checking where we're at before we even get started. That makes total sense. Today was pitch day in collaborative leadership. And the way pitch day works is uh, students give three minute pitches on the topics they want to work on for the semester. And our entire course is a 16 week group project where the students self-organize around topics that they themselves care about. So today is the day that we build that menu. And then over the weekend, they send me their preferences and I try to slot them into groups based on what they want, what based on what they said they wanted to work on that their peers pitched to them this semester. I have to say, the pitches I heard today were some of the best pitches I've heard oh, in four years that. and on some of the most interesting topics I never would have thought would come up in a, in a class on collaborative leadership. For example, one student was talking about na- uh, athletes having rights to their own names when they uh, yeah. perform athletics uh-huh. so that they too can earn funds off of their own likenesses. Uh, yeah. Another student pitched an idea about period product insecurity on mm-hmm. in education so yep. in college environments but in public education uh, on the whole and another student who's a senior and thinking about her own emerging career in human resources and workforce development wants to work on workplace burnout this semester oh. mm-hmm. and, my, and my immediate response to that was can I be in your group like I know I'm the professor <laughs> And I'm supposed to be impartial, but if we're going to talk about workplace burnout for a semester, have I got some stories for you? <laughs> yeah. 
let me be part of your focus group, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. I'm today. I'm super excited because we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Sanja Ardwa. Uh, Sanja is an associate professor of higher education and student affairs at Clemson University. Go Tigers. Go Tigers, right? Go Tigers. <laughs> yes, yes. Her research interests include social class identity in higher education, as well as college access and success, uh, particularly for first generation college students and students from rural areas. She also works toward improving women's leadership development and practice and career pathways in higher education and student affairs. How are you, Sanja? I am well. Uh, thanks for having me, V and Brittany. I appreciate it. You know, we also are in week two of classes. We started last Wednesday, so we've had a full swing um, of all of classes. So I'm excited to have new to me classes. I'm new to Clemson, so it's new to me um, and teaching PhD students. So I'm excited about that as well. It's September, September 1st today. So I'm excited too about forthcoming fall weather, less humidity here in North Carolina. And I just saw a map the other day about peak color, leave changing and things mm -hmm. like that. So mm -hmm. looking forward to that. And then you mentioned Go Tigers college football, but my GEAUX Tigers, my mm -hmm. alma mater, is playing my other alma mater, Florida State, this weekend. And so I'm headed down to New Orleans to see a battle of the alma mater. So I'm excited about that. You will see some familiar faces from Florida State there. We've got a whole pack headed <laughs> that way this weekend. So say hi to all of them. But thank you again for joining us. We are so appreciative of your time. So not only is a new semester for you, but you are at a new institution, Clemson, yeah. which is so exciting. So how are you acclimating to new environment, changing? You said teaching PhD students again. Tell yeah. us about the new environment. Yes. You know, the Go Tigers rolls off the tongue pretty easily. I've been saying that my whole <laughs> life, even my high school, like my K-12 school was Tigers. So got huh. that down. Nice. Uh, I, I owned a lot of Tiger gear in purple already. So that works. I just had to have to incorporate some orange, which is a new, new to my wardrobe color. But it's been a great welcome by my colleagues at Clemson, both in the higher ed and student affairs program and then sort of across the College of Education. They welcomed us with lots of swag. So I have lots of Clemson Paw things and students have been uh, very welcoming as well and sort of excited to take classes with a, a new person and learn alongside each other. And so that's been great. And, you know, I've been in higher ed for 17 years. And so, you know, I had somebody ask me like, oh, is this overwhelming? Like all these new employee orientations. And I was like, you know, it's <laughs> pretty similar. I mean, there's nuanced things, obviously. Mm -hmm. Things are mm -hmm. called different, like there's different office names, there's mm -hmm. different acronyms. It's a different campus footprint, right? You have to learn all those things. But I'm like, you know, there are some things that at this point I should probably be at least aware of. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I think it's often interesting how similar we are, despite the fact that we pretend that we're different. Yes. Often it's mm -hmm. just the wrapper, right? Like it's the yes. candy is the same. <laughs> it's the wrapper <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that looks different. Yes. So we invited you here today to talk a little bit about your work on social class identity and leadership learning and to hear your thoughts on a few current events. But before we get into all of that, can you remind our listeners about some of the things that you were involved with that we maybe didn't include in your introduction? Yeah, so I sort of try to stay engaged in the, in the broader field in a, a number of ways, right? I'm in sort of these professional spaces like ACPA and NASPA and ASH and those sorts of things. And recently I've been spending uh, more of my time. Um, I've always been involved with Leadership, which is a national nonprofit organization. And so still doing some work with Leadership. And then about five years or so ago, NASPA got some funding from the Souter Foundation and created the Center for First-Generation Student Success. I have been very lucky to be able to work with that center since its inception. And so I've been on their advocacy group. I'm on their Catalyst for Speakers Bureau. So I get to 
go and do some training with folks on on campuses about first generation college students. Uh, they started a brand new journal. So if you're doing first gen work and leadership or anything on first gen, the journal for first gen student success, I'm on the editorial board. The editors are top notch. So they're fantastic. I also get to do some work with the Association of Fraternal Leadership and Values or AFLV. I'm on their board of directors. And so looking at how we can um, advance change in fraternities and sororities and create leadership experiences within those organizations that are positive and focus sort of on uh, advancement and social change. Um, and then do some other work with some other journals as well, reviewing it on editorial boards and things like that. So I try to keep a pulse in things that matter to me as a person and a practitioner, but also align with my scholarship as well. Hmm. University of Illinois was just named one of the inaugural first generation first institutions. So super yeah. proud of that distinction. That's awesome. I love that. Speaking of all of the hats that you wear and all the things you do um, and giving back, especially in your intersecting interests and scholarship way back in spring 21, which feels like both a year ago and yesterday, (laughs) right? Um, You co-edited issue of the New Directions for Student Leadership monograph series that specifically focused on social class and leadership learning. Can you walk us through a little bit of planning? What happened? went into selecting chapter topics and authors, and what should folks who maybe didn't get a chance to pick that up know and take away from that too? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for mentioning that. You know, I really want to credit Dr. Kathy Guthrie at Florida State. It really was her brainchild. She sat next to me at the NASPA faculty breakfast 2019, probably. But I remember sitting next to Kathy and like, we're writing on this little notepad to each other because we didn't want to be like disruptive to like everybody (laughs) in this session. And she's like, what, you know, I want to talk to you about this. And so then after sort of the formal presentation, we were chatting about it. And then she's like, you know, I really think there is space in the leadership literature to look at uh, social class identity. We come from somewhat similar backgrounds, Kathy and I do. And so, you know, we identify coming from sort of those poor and working class backgrounds where first generation college students were from rural areas. And so we shared a lot of those interests. And right, we also know that we're both white cisgender women studying these sorts of things. And we started to think about how do we want to be intentional about representing how social class identity influences leadership learning and practice, but not just sort of from our perspective. And we were purposeful in thinking about, okay, how do we want to write about this in sort of nuanced, complex ways and who can do it? So we really were looking for a mix of folks, leadership scholars, social class scholars, leadership educators, practitioners, and people who sort of cross cut those variant spaces, because we wanted to represent those sort of different understandings, not only of social class and how it influences leadership learning, but of how leadership learning happens uh, on college campuses. And so we also wanted, wanted to give opportunity to people in terms of some of the folks who wrote for the issue were, it was their first publication ever, brand new authors. Yeah. Um, and some folks were more seasoned authors, right? They um, maybe are faculty who have that sort of in their requirements for their job mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to sort of mix and match um, people's uh, level of sort of experience and comfortability with writing also and telling them you can do this, right? You have the expertise, you know what you're talking about. You do this on the daily, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you're actually Mm -hmm. doing it. You're not just thinking and writing about it. And um, that was really important to us and people from different parts of the country. So how is this happening sort of broadly across Mm -hmm. um, at least the continental United States? That was important to us. And as we started writing and working with Dr. Susan Kovacs, who was uh, part of the sort of um, team from uh, New Directions for Student Leadership with uh, this project, Uh, we were like, okay, we probably need to start with what social class is, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do we define this for folks? Because it is kind of a like squirrely topic, (laughs) right? Like people Mm -hmm. want it to be quantitatively defined. And Mm -hmm. the challenge is that it's hard to quantitatively define if you're talking broadly about social class and not just the 
dollars, wealth, income, finances piece of social class. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that first section of the issue is really about defining what it is and how it is influential to leadership learning and practice. And so how are we linking these two, this, you know, social identity with this concept of leadership and the practice of leadership? So that's what we sort of kicked it off with first in terms of the issue. Then we started looking at, um, okay, well, social class doesn't happen in isolation. Like I don't just experience Mm -hmm. my life as somebody from a poor and working class background and somebody who currently identifies as a class straddler, Mm -hmm. um, meaning Mm -hmm. that my income has changed and some of my ways of being and thinking and preferences have changed and some have remained the same. That's what class Mm -hmm. straddling means. And so we started uh, thinking about folks who could ride on social class and race, social class and gender, social class mm-hmm. and intersectionality to, and we, I mean, you could really do a whole issue and go through all of it, but uh, we selected a few that often come up in leadership spaces, right? The gender piece comes up, the race piece comes up and mm-hmm. not that the other mm-hmm. ones aren't important. They are, but you just, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's limited space, yeah. right? In these issues. Right. And so we wanted to look at sort of that layering of identities and how that impacts leadership learning. And then we went to different environments where people engage in leadership learning and practice. So how is social class impacting these different environments on college campuses or attached sort of to college campuses and learning where leadership is happening and how does social class play into that? And so we looked at things like advocacy and activism. There are articles on uh, what we call traditional student leader roles. So things such like SGA, orientation, Mm -hmm. resident assistance, Mm -hmm. uh, things of that nature fraternity and sorority life. Um, there's an article on that. Outdoor leadership education, uh, experiential learning, right? So obviously outdoor education is experiential learning, but outside mm-hmm. of that, so things like internships, mm-hmm. service learning, um, those sorts of things. And then finally, graduate and professional schools, because we know leadership learning is happening in all these environments, but contextually, how is social class showing up in those different ways that we're trying to engage students in that both cognitive and uh, application-based learning of leadership? And then finally, we wanted to offer some recommendations and implications, right? You can't poke holes <laughs> in everything and then just say, figure it out. Um, right. So uh, we uh, that final article, that final section really looks at, based on everything folks have read, whether it is about the multiple sort of layering of identities or the different contexts and environments where people are engaging in leadership learning, what can folks be thinking about? And we also know that in some of these issues, people aren't reading every article, right? So they might be parceling what maybe applies to them. So if you are fraternity sorority advisor, maybe you're picking out that article because you want to think about your space, right? Or if you are uh, in campus record, outdoor ed, maybe you're pulling that article out. And so we also take that into context as well. That's great. Thank you for that. Really comprehensive but so incredibly succinct yeah. overview that was phenomenal so it's it's almost like you've <laughs> talked about this kind of thing before <laughs> once or twice maybe once or twice <laughs> I, I also wanted to mention i particularly appreciated your commentary around creating platforms for people who don't naturally think of themselves as academic or scholarly writers yep. in my experience there are people who, who may be listening to this episode who don't think of themselves as uh fitting in that space even though they do the work, because they might think to themselves, well, I do this work, I'm not a big deal, therefore it's not a big deal, which act, which yep. isn't true. Yep. The work is a big deal. And if fewer mm-hmm. people are telling us about how they're doing it, there's fewer of us that can learn those lessons. And yep. when they do tell those stories and when people like you do create platforms for that to happen, we all get better faster because that story sharing matters in really meaningful ways. So, well, and, and I think to your point too, like who is a big deal? nobody. I don't think one voice should be uh, necessarily Mm -hmm. hyped more than another, right? We're all 80% of us are doing work uh, to try to advance things in a positive way. How do we hear from folks who are 
you know, doing this at community colleges, who are doing it at historically mm-hmm. black colleges, at minority serving, you know, or HSIs, you know, things like that, uh, Hispanic mm-hmm. serving institutions. So, you know, I think we should be elevating voices that are not quote unquote normally in the space or that don't feel scholarly, quote unquote. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I struggle with the term being a scholar, right? I don't, mm-hmm. I would say I'm a scholar practitioner. I would say, right, I'm a teacher and learner, but yeah. um, I was actually talking to this uh, with some folks, uh, I guess, lectured in a class uh, this week at Valdosta, for Valdosta State University. And it was a research class. And I was like, you know, if you can't identify with the word scholar, go with what works for you. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. As a qualitative researcher, I feel like I'm a storyteller, right? And that works yeah. for me, right? I'm a storyteller. I'm a conversationalist, right? I'm a mm-hmm. numbers person, right? If you do more quant work. And so yeah. how do we see ourselves in it so that we can share what we're doing? Because it is valuable. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to add, Sanja, in your point there too, I was very affirmed and I sure many other people on here too. Social classes feel like a really big, scary term to try to like not know what it is, right? Like yep. it is, you know what it is and you don't know what it is, but all it's all the things sometimes, right? Like, yes. is it rural and urban? Is it SES? Is it not? It's all of the things. So I think I'm assuming other listeners were also affirmed in your, your nuance of the definition, right? That there isn't really a definition because it is so many things feeding into what our social class is and where we situate ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, we run in sometimes to feedback from reviewers on, you know, (laughs) give us a specific thing. And, you know, there are some income markers, there are some Mm -hmm. uh, educational markers, some career, like occupational markers, there's Mm -hmm. all kinds of things folks use, but it's really all of those things, right? It's language, Mm -hmm. it's jobs and careers, it's finances, it's who you know, right? The social capital pieces of it. Um, And so it is sort of hard to to quantify and wrap your arms around. But what is important, I think, to me and and to me and Dr. Guthrie and the uh, authors um, of this issue is that having people understand it's not just money, right? So Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. if we fix the money issue, right, and said everybody in the world gets the same salary and amount of money, that doesn't fix the other pieces of social classes. So how do we think about it in more holistic, nuanced ways? It's always reviewer number two, right? It's always. <laughs> right. always. Sometimes three, two. if there's like a whole set of <laughs> That's true. That's true. So if you don't mind, Sanja, I'm going to quote you to you. Okay. Uh, and then I have a question. Sure. Uh, so in the editorial of that NDSL, it says, attempts to conceal one's social class across the spectrum from poor to affluent is likely related to one's feelings about this aspect of their identity. Social class can evoke pride, guilt, resentment, shame, ambivalence, and a wide range of other emotions. Compounding the internal ways individuals feel about social class are the implicit and explicit messages that it is considered a taboo topic and should be avoided. Thus, the exploration of this identity aspect can be stunted for many individuals. It's a great piece of scholarship. My question (laughs) is, if I'm a leadership educator and I'm trying to untaboo social class in my leadership learning context, how do I do that? Are there approaches that you found helpful in maybe your instructional or advisory or supervisory or mentorship roles that help open the dialogue around social class? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that, V. You know, as, as you read stuff back to me, I think, are you sure I wrote that? I mean, I have no idea, but it doesn't, mm-hmm. like, that doesn't sound like me. So one, and, and none of this is going to seem groundbreaking. But, and if folks are doing work around other elements of social class identity, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice work, you know, this is going to sound probably familiar. And one, talk about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. The way you make things untaboo is to talk about things that people view are taboo, right? You mentioned earlier your students uh, in your class and uh, then pitching projects. And you said, you know, things around uh, periods administration, right? Mm -hmm. Another thing Mm -hmm. that sometimes is taboo, but you just said it, right? You said Mm -hmm. it and you can't, like it was 
And so that is an example, right, of talking about things that sometimes people are like, ooh, I can't believe you said that word, right? And mm -hmm. they're just, they're words that we know exist, right? We know those mm -hmm. things happen in the world. Sometimes they're biological, sometimes they're socially constructed and socially created, things like social class. And so talking about it, right? And I often start with talking about my own social class identity, um, because I think if I am willing to name those things, now, it might make some people uncomfortable. And I've gotten feedback from conference proposal reviewers, from journal reviewers that are like, you know, you're, you use these terms poor and working class, and that makes people uncomfortable. And my <laughs> gut reaction response, and sometimes what I write back is, who? Who is it making mm -hmm. uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. It ain't the poor and working class people it's making <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so we can, you know, uh, parallel that to like conversations about race, right? Which sometimes people don't want to talk about race because it's making who? White people, like me, mm -hmm. uncomfortable, right? And so... I think talking about it, naming it, um, I think reading about it is helpful. And so mm -hmm. um, not always necessarily uh, like journal articles or scholarly literature, but how can we read sort of uh, more opinion pieces or things that are more consumable sometimes? I hope that some of our scholarship and work is consumable that we've done on social class and, right? Um, mm -hmm. Ways that people can see, whether it's documentaries or podcasts or whatever. Sometimes young adult novels do a phenomenal mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. um, of explaining some of these concepts, talking and reading about it, I think reflecting on it, having people think about what that means, because I think some people, there used to be, there's not so much anymore. I would say when I was in college, like 20 years ago, right? There was this narrative of the poor college student. I actually saw a mm -hmm. news piece about it on the on the local news the other day too. And so this narrative of poor college student, like let's have people reflect on that. Like what does that actually mm -hmm. mean, right? We have students on our campus that don't know where they're sleeping tonight and don't know where their next meal is coming from, right? That is different. Than mm -hmm. a student who is waiting for their caregiver to reload their debit card or credit mm -hmm. card or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so those are different things. Um, and so how do we have individual and collective reflection on what social class is? And then I think we also, from a leadership educator standpoint, can use it as an analytic tool. How do we learn about social class? So then we can use it as an analytic tool to look at our opportunities for leadership learning and analyze them to say, who is actually able to access these things and who is not? Because I think oftentimes on college campuses, we say, well, we have all these options. We have all these opportunities for students. Options don't mean access, mm -hmm. right? And so you can, you know, you can have a whole buffet, but I can only afford, right, the plain lettuce, right? And yeah. so whether that's afforded in money or time or energy or whatever. So how do we also use that as an analytic tool, I think is key. But I mean, talking about it, is the big thing, the biggest thing to make things untaboo is to be transparent and open mm -hmm. and say it. <laughs> well, like you said, Sandra, right? Like the student who doesn't know where they're sleeping that night probably then also doesn't have the time or capacity or resources to go online and look at the institution's policies for resources on places to stay mm -hmm. if you're in, in that kind of predicament or things too, right? So that capital connection is, is so nuanced too. And again, something often people don't want to talk about because it makes those who are not in that place uncomfortable too. So one more question for you before we take a short break. Sure. Um, in your article from on NDSL still, uh, on expanding the influence of social class and leadership development, you advocate for leadership educators to interrogate the hidden costs of leadership learning experiences, specifically highlighting hidden financial costs as well as opportunity costs. Can you say more about what typical kinds of costs, overt, covert, um, that in your experience leadership educators may tend to overlook in their programming efforts? Yeah, we often... Um automatically go to money. And I think that's mm -hmm. an important first place, right? To scan an inventory for, and I call them sort of like pay mm -hmm. to play fees, yeah. right? Um, and so whether that's a registration cost or a deposit for something, and sometimes people are like, well, it's just a deposit. I'm going to give it back to them if they attend. 
Yeah. Maybe I don't have the hold their money, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you're not my bank. You know, like that's not how that works. <laughs> and so I think, and and some people have thought about that recently, and they've said, you know, well, I'll say if it's an issue, contact us. Well, that's still a barrier, right? And mm-hmm. so how do we think about some of those things uh, in terms of necessarily, is it necessary to have a fee or a deposit or those sorts mm-hmm. of things? Or we can we have some component to the registration where in there, they a student could click a button to say, if I'm selected and have to pay, I can't, I can no longer participate. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. way to, um, without them having to email Brittany to say, hey, I can't do this, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that is uh, an automatic one that people go to. But also, it's sort of around money, but not always like things like, oh, well, you want to be in this organization. Well, you need to buy the T-shirt or the mm-hmm. bag or the whatever mm-hmm. all the swag stuff is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of that uh, or you have to have a specific uniform, if you will. Like mm-hmm. I still don't wear khaki because I was an orientation leader. Right. Like I, it, <laughs> it ruined khaki for me forever. Um, and I remember even thinking then, like I'm buying this item of clothing that I hate, like it's a waste mm-hmm. of my money because outside of this space, I'm never going to wear these khaki yeah. pants, shorts, whatever it was. And so thinking about some of those things, like, is that necessary? Um, or can you provide it to students so that it's not a cost for them? Things like travel. So if you're expected to travel, not only the cost part, but like as a college student, I had never been on a plane. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know like the social mores and like rules of like, air travel um, and thing or train travel if you're, you know, in a different part of the country or like those sorts of things. So some of those more like cultural capital types of pieces that we don't always think of. One that really got me a lot when I was working at one particular institution was students were expected to front all the money for like events and things like that, that their organizations hosted. And then they got reimbursed later, but that reimbursement could take anywhere from two to six weeks. Um, and wow. so like they're, you know, paying for their stuff at a involvement fair or they're paying for the stuff for a meeting. Right. So who has the money to front that? Um, <laughs> or it's sometimes, do you know where you need to buy it from? Or if it's short notice or like those sorts of things. And then the big one, I don't think people always think about is time. Uh, and I appreciate mm-hmm. that y'all mentioned that earlier around, like if you're going to this meeting, you can't work part-time. And so mm-hmm. I think time is a huge, oh, like cost to people, mm-hmm. whether it's time away from their studies. So maybe they're on scholarship and they have to get certain grades to be able to be eligible to stay at mm-hmm. that institution. So time away from academics, um, time away from work, which you mentioned earlier, that that's full time, part time, mm-hmm. whatever kind of work somebody's doing. And then the other piece I think that people don't always think about is time away from family and caregiving responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you may be caregiving for little humans, you may be caregiving for elderly family members or people in your life. And so I think that time component, when do we have meetings? When are the opportunities? When are the events? Um, And who are we considering? And are we only framing that for sort of an 18 to 22 year old sort of middle class, quote unquote, typical college student? And so if we're doing that, then it's not only a cost to that student, the time, but it's a cost to our organizations and our leadership learning because we're missing those people's perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great set of recommendations. Um, Let's take a short break and we'll be right back with Dr. Sanja Ardua. And now it's time for a segment we're calling Ripped from the Headlines, where we ask our guests to react to something that has happened in the news fairly recently. Sanja, are you ready? Probably not, but hit me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so in the last few weeks from the time of this recording, the Biden administration has announced a loan forgiveness program for borrowers of federal post-secondary student loans. Currently, individuals who earn less than $125,000 annually are eligible for up to $20,000 in student loan forgiveness if they were Pell-eligible students, um, and up to $10,000 if they didn't have a Pell grant. Sanja... What impacts does this have um, on the student debt crisis initiative? What do you think our field will feel from this and society in general? How are we responding? Yes, I will start by sort of giving you background on myself into the context of this situation. I am a first generation college grad. I had the benefit of living in a state, Louisiana, that had a tuition opportunity program called TOPS, where if you made certain high school grades, GPA, ACT score, you can go to any in-state public institution tuition free. So that was Mm -hmm. a benefit to me. It was only, you know, very frankly, it's the only reason I went to college is because of this program called TOPS. And Mm -hmm. I am a Pell Grant recipient. So I also benefited from the Pell Grant, from the work study program, the federal work study program, and a number of scholarships, both merit and need-based scholarships Mm -hmm. at the undergraduate level. Uh, I chose to go to Florida State for my master's degree because I got the most best financial package. I chose to go to NC State for my PhD because I got (laughs) the best financial package. So all of my decisions are based on that because I come from a working class background. And so that was my only access point into sort of higher education and graduate degrees uh, was go where the money is, right? And I still had student loans, not as much as other people because mm-hmm. I grew up in a state that had the TOPS program and I, you know, applied to scholarships and I did these other things and I still had loans. Um, and so uh, the state of Louisiana, the TOPS program um, used to get an additional stipend if you were ed major because they were trying to encourage people going into education. So I did that, but it came with a stipulation that if you didn't teach in Louisiana for two or four years, depending on the school district, uh, you had to pay it back. So I had to pay that back. Uh, that was $2,000 a semester. So if you can do the math, it's, I don't know, it's 18, dollars <laughs> something like that. And then I had um, some loans from my master's program and then some loans from my doc program as well, because we know what we pay doc students as graduate assistants and <laughs> mm-hmm. the master's level is even uh, worse. And so people still have to have somewhere to live, food to eat, et cetera. And so I use my loans for a lot of those things. And I paid off my all of my student loans, probably 2018, maybe 17 or 18. And that was important to me that I wanted to be able to pay off my student loans and, you know, public loan service forgiveness, PSL, public service loan forgiveness, whatever mm-hmm. um, yeah. that program, <laughs> um, it existed. I was afraid of it because I was like, I don't want to pay in. And then they all of a sudden tell me I don't qualify. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to depend on this thing. And part of that is due to my social class background. Right? I don't want to trust this thing because it might not actually mm-hmm. pan out those sorts of things. And at first, when people were uh, trying to get uh, cleared under that program, uh, they were being denied, like one less than 1% of people got cleared. Mm-hmm. That has been sort of fixed a little bit to my understanding. And so then I was like, okay, I'm glad I didn't do it because, you know, some of these people got denied or it had to go through multiple uh, times. I say all that to say, as somebody who is a Pell Grant recipient, who had student loans, who paid off my student loans, I am in support of this program. And I think it will have significant impact on the field. I think, you know, we have seen um, people vacillate on their interest in the field in higher education and student affairs because of the level of formal credentials we require and experience we require uh, in comparison to the pay we offer as people are taking on debt to because 
there's lots of reasons people take on debt. They may not live in a state that has a tuition program. They may not be able to relocate for a graduate program like I could. Um, mm -hmm. And they're, so they're going down the road to whatever is accessible to them. And so we expect people to have these degrees. Well, then we're essentially telling they have to incur some kind of debt, at least probably a little bit um, to be able to qualify for the field. And so mm -hmm. this program, the debt relief is perhaps going to not only provide some relief and peace of mind, at least some, because mm -hmm. we know there are limitations to the forgiveness and maybe, maybe encourage people to come back to the field, to stay in the field, to join the field, those sorts of things. And for our field, I think it is positive in terms of it encouraging people to pursue not only degrees, but also working as employees in higher education institutions as well. Uh, I think for society as well, particularly right now with things like, it, you know, the inflation we're seeing, those sorts of things. And, you know, there's debates on if this is going to make inflation worse and like mm -hmm. all of those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I'm not an economist, right? That's not what I studied. <laughs> I do think as we think about people, at least, and there is data on this, who are quote in the millennials, which is sort of my generation. I'm like an mm -hmm. old millennial though, you know, um, <laughs> or people that are sort of like millennial to sort of Gen, I mean, um, Gen Z that we haven't been, you know, it's been harder to buy a house. It's been harder to mm -hmm. um, have children. It's been harder to do these things. And so maybe that this will provide some relief and peace of mind for folks who desire to do those things. So I think societally it's, I think it's positive and I know, right, that that is debatable uh, among variant people. It's those tensions, right? If people are, more people are needing graduate degrees or more people are needing advanced degrees, even outside of education and higher education, yes. but then taking on more debt and then getting jobs that are paying lower than to pay it off, right? It's the, it's the endless cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your, your comments also made me think about there are probably a huge group of Americans who want to go back to school to get another degree and have deterred those plans because of the student debt they already had. Mm -hmm. And so by having some of some of or all of that debt being forgiven, it now frees them up to pursue more education. So even if they didn't necessarily think about debt or income as related to their class identity, all of a sudden, if you qualify to be yeah. able to pay for a new academic credential, that absolutely has an impact on your class identity, right? Well, and it also has an impact on society as well, because mm -hmm. then people like, especially if people are interested in fields that are high need fields, like nursing, mm -hmm. education, any probably things in like tech, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so, and actually there was an article, it was either Chronicle or Inside Higher Ed this week uh, that was talking about that the uh, loan forgiveness uh, may also be extremely beneficial for folks who started um, programs, whether they were certificate programs at community colleges or, you know, mm -hmm. other, you know, associate's degrees or bachelor's degrees um, and did not complete. Uh, yeah. And so this may allow them yep. to go back and complete that degree, which could change not only an individual, but family sort of trajectory um, as well. If folks are able, you know, to get a welding certificate or to mm -hmm. get their mm -hmm. associate's degree or um, is it a, 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 I can't think of it, mm -hmm. a yeah. LPN maybe, or uh, one of those, RN, mm -hmm. it's RN. Yeah. So, you know, thinking about what that means for our communities that are also needing of people in these, in these fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned just a moment ago, um, and that is the rhetoric uh, from people who regard this kind of loan forgiveness policy as unfair to those who either don't or can't benefit from it. And I was hoping you would say a little bit more about your perceptions about that. Well, you know, I often think unfair to whom? And then I think mm -hmm. about to what advantages did I have based on the identities I had, where I grew up, who I was with? 
you know, all of those things that other people didn't have either. Um, I, I mentioned living in Louisiana and having access to tops. That gave me an advantage that other people didn't have. Understanding that we never all get the same thing. We never all get the same prenatal care. We never mm-hmm. all get the same health care. I, I don't understand why people thusly think that it should be the same for student loans. That doesn't make sense. And I think it also is a representation of how people are more individualistic in their mindsets than collectivistic in their mindsets. And I think that if we think about that, and and we could go through all kinds of federal and state policies, how we uh, do taxes to fund schools. I currently do not have any children. And I guarantee Mm -hmm. you some of my taxes are going to my local you know, elementary, middle, and high school. I'm happy mm-hmm. for that. I'm an educator. I believe in public education. <laughs> I went to public schools my entire yeah. life. And so, and if they wanted to raise taxes to better fund schools, I would vote yes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even if I had kids and I was sending them to a private school, I would still vote yes for public schools, even though, quote unquote, that doesn't individually benefit me. It benefits my community. It benefits the people who live in my community. It benefits mm-hmm. society. So we could talk about that with the PPP loans, right? For businesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who got those? Those mm-hmm. were forgiven, right? Mm-hmm. We can talk about Social Security and how we all paying into it and we have no idea if it's going to be there for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. we can go through all, I mean, and that's just three, right? We can go through a ton of those things. And so I think it, it essentially the debate is individualism versus collectivism. How do we get to a place where people can see beyond their individual, whether individual being a singular person or individual being however they're defining family to community society um, and how some things allow sort of the betterment for the greater good and the greater group. And can we be, how do we get to be okay with that? Right. How do we get more Mm -hmm. people to be okay with that? Yeah. I don't have an answer. That's just what I'm sitting with. I think about, especially Sanja, when you talked about the individual versus collective, I think this is such a hot topic in in leadership education right now, right? Me and I in the classroom and folks that are doing co-curricular work um, are really leaning into this, especially with Gen Z, who's really reimagining what all that we think of all those things. So what lessons do you think aspiring leaders can learn from watching this conflict in favor of student loan and those against it? And even again, like you said, the individual and collective nature of, of where maybe our world is headed and the conversations around leadership are headed. Yeah, I think I think it's clear people understand that we are living in a divisive time. Mm-hmm. Whether it's more or less divisive than ever before is questionable, right? Like <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we could go talk to people in the 1800s or the 1960s yeah. who would say just as divisive, right? And so yeah. I think we we recognize we're living in a divisive time. What we haven't figured out is how do we engage across and with that divisiveness? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was actually uh, teaching a class last night on critical social theory. And mm-hmm. two of the things that stick out to me from critical social theory, which is sort of the umbrella for all the critical theories, right, um, mm-hmm. is social perspective taking and dialectical thinking. So social mm-hmm. perspective taking is how do I grasp somebody else's stance on something, right? Mm-hmm. So can I grasp in this case, why somebody's against student loan forgiveness? Mm-hmm. I can grasp it. I don't even have to agree with it, right? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. grasp it and understand it and and see why they're, you know, even what is the root of that, you know, uh, pushback uh, against student loan forgiveness. So how do we teach folks to engage in social perspective taking? And then dialectical thinking is being able to sort of hold two opposing things at once Mm -hmm. and understand that they can be true for two people at once. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, we don't have to agree. Sometimes the the sort of other argument can be harmful or dehumanizing to other people. But how how do we engage in this type of, of thinking so that we can have conversation across the divisiveness. If mm-hmm. I can't have a conversation with somebody else who, you know, is a, a white cisgender person from the Southeast who grew up poor and working class, who also paid off their student loans, who disagrees with me, 
then how are we ever going to move forward, right? We're just going to yeah. deeply embed that divisiveness. So I think those sort of uh, metacognitive skills, I think are important to teach. And then the conversational skills, how do we just not say, well, we're going to agree to disagree and walk away or mm-hmm. attack mm-hmm. each other and never talk again, or, you know, those sorts of things. How do we sort of uh, sit with, sit in, engage in some of those divisiveness in ways that we can hear and understand each other, even if we don't necessarily come to a place where we can agree. And then I think too, um, is how in leadership learning do we, so like, if you look at leadership theory over time, you go from like super individualistic theory to more mm-hmm. collectivist theory, right? Yeah. Um, and so yeah. how do we also move people's leadership practice from yeah. this individualistic, independent sort of space, like quote unquote, mm-hmm. the great man theories, right? Mm-hmm. Trait theory mm-hmm. to a place of more collectivism, interdependence, culturally relevant leadership learning and, you know, mm-hmm. social change, like all of those um, more collectivistic, frames of leadership learning and practice. I think to me, that's important. And if we can get to that collectivist interdependent space, then maybe we can have less divisiveness because we can see, even if this doesn't benefit me, it benefits us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we know even from the multi-institutional study for leadership, right? Time and time again, conversation across difference is a major predictor in students' leadership mm-hmm. capacity and advocacy development, right? But they do such a good job on college campuses, right, of making students talk across difference and engage in dialogue around why do you believe a certain thing or do, you know, can you talk to people who don't, but then we throw them out in what quote unquote real world. And then oftentimes we, they regress in those skills or other people are not ready for the skills they develop in college to be able to engage. So I think that is, will continue to be a challenge as we prepare future leaders in different industries. Well, and I think you look at that from a multi-generational workspace or family space, mm-hmm. and that can get even comp- that can get complicated because maybe we weren't teaching those things 20 years ago when I was in college or 40 years ago when my boss was in college, you know, like mm-hmm. those sorts of things as well. How do we also teach people to talk across even when they, or how do they share their skills for talking across? Uh, mm-hmm. Because sometimes you have to manage up and teach up and, you know, all yeah. of those things as well. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up our time together today, Sanja, uh, can you share with our audience where they might find you in the future or what they might see from you next? Yeah, absolutely. So this fall, I'll be at the Southern um, Association of College Student Affairs or SACSA conference in Birmingham. Uh, I'm excited to uh, present there. And then uh, my dear colleague, Dr. Becky Martinez, uh, who actually wrote one of the articles um, in the NDSL issue, she and I are going to co-keynote one of the SACSA plenaries. So that's exciting. Mm -hmm. I'll also be at the Association of the Study of Higher Ed or ASH conference out in Las Vegas. So that should be a grand time. Um, (laughs) And then uh, I'm excited about some new book projects. We are under a contract for a book with Stylus. Um, I'm co-editing with Dr. Tyler Hallmark from the Sloan Foundation uh, and Dr. Darius Means who's at the University of Pittsburgh. uh, And we are doing a co-edited book on race and rurality, looking at how do higher education institutions serve students from rural areas, particularly students of color from rural areas. So we are very excited about that project. We also have a second book project that is under peer review. Uh, so that one's more on the hush, right? Until we get that contract <laughs> signed. But I'm hoping for one, at least two books out in spring of 24. Um, I'm doing some other uh, research projects as well that are um, more sort of journal article types of things. And then uh, I'm excited to visit a couple of campuses um, this fall through the uh, Center for First Generation First Generation Student Success Catalyst first speaker series. So um, I'll be at uh, Texas A&M San Antonio and Rochester Community and Technical College in Minnesota. So excited to visit some campuses and do some good work with faculty and staff too. 
I love that. So you're going to be all over the place, which is yes. so fun. Getting some good traveling. Um, exactly. So what would you want our audience members to do if they're interested in learning more about your work and maybe even social class in general? Where should they be looking? What should they be reading, listening to all of the above? All of sort of the access, like uh, my publications are listed on my website, which is just my name. So www.sanja, S-O-N-J-A, Ardwin, A-R-D-O-I-N.com. Um, and uh, I will um, mention two books on social class identity that I got to do with some amazing colleagues. Um, one is a book on straddling class in the academy. I uh, co-wrote that with Dr. Becky Martinez, and it's a narrative book. So we um, uh, looked at undergraduate students, graduate students, uh, faculty and staff experiences with straddling class in higher education. Uh, we printed people's stories uh, in their own words. And so that uh, is really helpful and I think uh, connective uh, for people uh, in terms of the storytelling uh, in that volume. And then I got to co-edit uh, a book on social class supports with Dr. Georgiana Martin. Um, and so that one is really focused on how institutions, and it's a co-edited volume, so lots of chapters from folks about what they're doing on their campuses. So it's a great scalability for folks who are saying, what can we do on our campus? There's examples from all kinds of institutions from all across the continental United States. So um, those would be two I would highlight. And then there are other folks who are doing great work around social class. Dr. Britt Williams, who's at Vermont, does some great stuff. Dr. Dave Wynn at Ohio U does some great stuff. Dr. Krista Soria, who's at uh, Idaho does some great stuff. I can't name everybody, but uh, there are lots of folks who are doing uh, amazing work around social class. Um, some of it linked to leadership learning as well. So great work out there to check out. Thanks again, Sandra, for your time and energy today. Uh, how can our listeners connect with you? On that website, I mentioned I do have a connect page. That you can directly email me through that. You can also email me at my Gmail, which is my name, Sandra Ardwin. Uh, at gmail.com. And then I do try to be in the Twitter space. And so uh, it is my, my handle is like at and my name Sandra Ardwin as well. So any of those spaces, or if you're at a conference I'm at, please come say hello. Uh, I'd be happy to chat about any of these things further. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for Thank being co-hosting. Thank you so much. Loved it. That's all we've got for today. We'll catch you next time. The NASPA SLPKC podcast is a production of the Student Affairs Administrators and Higher Education's Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. As the leading voice of student affairs, NASPA drives innovation and evidence-based, student-centered practice throughout higher education, nationally and globally. The mission of the SLPKC is to serve as a resource for higher education professionals who have an interest in leadership training, education, and development. The podcast is produced by Derek Pacheco and hosted by Brittany Devies, Anna Maya, and me, Vichinu. The music featured on our episodes comes from pixabay.com. Find us on Twitter at NASPA Tweets, Send email to slpchairs at gmail.com and find links to our references from this episode in the show notes. Thank you, as always, for listening.